Oh, good morning. I think we've seen that bumper enough by now. You guys kind of know what to expect at this point, so we'll just go ahead and jump right in. The other day, I saw an updated list of the most common phobias. Now, the American Psychiatric Association, they don't put out the list, but they do define a phobia as something that causes such stress that it interrupts normal life function. So we know the usuals, right? Arachnophobia is the fear of spiders. Claustrophobia is the fear of enclosed spaces. Necrophobia is the fear of death. Glossophobia is the fear of public speaking. What's interesting is that people rank the fear of speaking in public as greater than the fear of death. So as Jerry Seinfeld says, that means for most people, if they had to go to a funeral, they'd rather be the one in the casket than the one giving the eulogy. The list I was looking at included some of the non-traditional fears like octophobia, which is the fear of death, or excuse me, the fear of the number eight. Olfactophobia is the fear of foul smells. Or how about this one? Dorophobia is the fear of animal fur. Probably not what you were expecting, right? As a dad, I have the other kind of dorophobia. Some of you parents might know what that is. Tachophobia is the fear of pregnant women. Then there's onphalophobia, which is the fear of belly buttons. Now, it didn't say whether innies or outies are more terrifying. Arachibuterophobia, of course, it's the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. Windbagophobia is the fear of long sermons. No, I just made that one up. Here's an interesting one. Nomophobia is the fear of being without your phone. It says that 50% of people ex- exhibit extreme anxiety symptoms if they're placed in a room without their phone. Is that you? Some of you are just looking up from your phone right now. See, fear of all kinds is a part of life, and your success in life in large part is determined by how well you manage your fears. C.S. Lewis, channeling Aristotle, said that courage is one of the least talked about Christian virtues, but it is essential to all the others. And that's what we're going to look at today. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. As you turn there, I'll let you know that for years I've struggled with courage. In high school, I struggled to to stand up and and find the courage to to talk to my friends when, when I knew they were doing something wrong. Sometimes I've shrunk back from sharing Christ with someone or not speaking the truth to someone out out of fear. I've made financial decisions based on fear and not trust. Fear has disrupted my normal life function of obeying God. And I would guess that there are a number of people here today who are immobilized by some kind of fear. Maybe for you, it's fear about the future. You've got medical news that that leaves you really uncertain about what lies ahead. Or maybe your marriage isn't going well. You wonder, what's my family going to be like in the future? Or your kids seem to be making some really dumb decisions. Maybe it's the fear of entering into a new relationship. I know that there are single people here who are hesitant to enter into a, a relationship because they're scared of commitment. For others, it's fear that keeps you from ending a relationship that you know you shouldn't be in. Or maybe it's the fear uh, of never being in a relationship 
And so you panic and make really poor relationship decisions. Today in Judges, we're going to see a guy who was not courageous. He's not some sort of model, but he is someone who God made into a hero nonetheless. And here's what I want you to see from the outset. God doesn't reward courage in people. He gives courage to people. Judges chapter 6, verse 1, this is after Deborah, the judge from last week, died, says the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They they were like the IRS. There, There was nothing left when they were done. Verse 6, Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. Now stop for a minute. That's a little odd, isn't it? That they cry out to the Lord and the Lord sends them a prophet? That they weren't asking for teaching, they were asking for deliverance. This would be like if you were stranded on the side of the road and you call AAA and instead of them sending a tow truck, they send you an email about safe driving. But you see, Israel's problem was not primarily the Midianites, they were their own problem. They were asking for deliverance, but what God said is, first, you need a sermon. And some of you are in that category. You're here seeking something from God, but what God wants to do first is turn the spotlight in on your own heart. Now, let me be very clear. Not every instance of suffering is due to disobedience. In fact, I would say most instances aren't. God's not always trying to teach you something when you suffer, Oftentimes, believers suffer just like Jesus did, having done nothing wrong. But sometimes suffering is. Psalm 119, 67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. And so I think it's just worth asking. Is it possible that God is trying to get your attention today? You came wanting God to give you help or, or, or deliverance or, or a raise or a boyfriend, but God is saying, what I need to do in your heart is more important. Like we talked about when we studied Jonah together, he hasn't caused hardship to pay you back, but to bring you back. Verse 11 says, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah. And the angel said, Gideon, look under your chair. And you get a car, and you get a car. No, that's a different Oprah. (laughs) Where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now, you just have to understand, a wine press is a terrible place to thresh wheat. Let me explain a a little bit to you about threshing wheat in case you haven't done it in a while. The way that they threshed wheat is they would throw it up in the air And they would get it to where the wind could blow it, and all the light, useless stuff called the chaff would be taken away, and and the the big stuff would fall back down. The good stuff would fall back down. And a wine press is underground, which means it's a terrible place to thresh wheat, because there's not a whole lot of wind underground. You ask, so why is Gideon doing it down there? Because he's scared. He's afraid. 
The point is, this is no Vin Diesel. This is no Chuck Norris. This is no Nicolas Cage, okay? This guy's scared. Verse 12, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, if this were a Broadway play, at this point, everyone would have laughed. I mean, Gideon is hiding in a hole. This is like going up to a guy who's like five foot one, 125, and saying, what's up, big fella, right? It sounds like he's mocking him, but he's not. And this is maybe the main point today. God does not speak to Gideon based on who he is, but based on what God is going to make him into. Gideon is not called because he's courageous. He's made courageous as a result of his call. God doesn't call the brave. He makes brave those he calls. You see, when God calls us, he doesn't see us or he doesn't define us by the condition that we're in, but by what he's determined to make us into in Christ. Isn't that good news? Like we were all a mess before God came to us. He doesn't reward the righteous and the courageous. He makes men and women righteous and courageous. And so God looks at a man who's cowering in a hole and he says, hey Gideon, mighty warrior, get up. Verse 13, pardon me my Lord, Gideon replied. And he asked two questions. But if the Lord is with us, why is all this happening to us? Now, based on what we've just read, this question is totally wrong-headed. Had God left the people? No. The people had left God. The second question is even more confusing. Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about? God, why don't you do great things for us anymore? Well, Gideon, you have an angel sitting right there in front of you. I think that might qualify as a wonderful thing. But look at God's specific answer in verse 14. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? God's answer to Gideon's question, where are all my wonders, Gideon? Why, I'm about to do them through you. See, we often look to heaven and we wonder, God, where are you? And God's response is, you are my work in this generation. By by the way, you you know who this angel is in verse 12? Verse 12, he's called an angel, and he talks about the Lord in the third person. But then in verse 14, however, he's called the Lord directly. This happens a lot in the Hebrew Bible, and it's really a mystery until the coming of Jesus. And after that, it all makes sense. It's what theologians call a Christophany. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Jesus was both the messenger of God in addition to being God himself. Verse 15 Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. He's saying, God, I'm small. I'm a coward. I'm here threshing wheat underground for crying out loud. The Lord answered, I will be with you. This is God's one-line answer to everything. I'd encourage you to underline it. Everything you need is in that statement. I will be with you. And you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. In other words, you will take out the entire mass of Midianite army as if it were one scrawny little guy. Verse 17, Gideon replied, if now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it's really you talking to me. 
So the angel tells Gideon to prepare some food, and when Gideon puts it on the table, the angel touches the food with his staff, and springs burst forth out of the rock and consume the food, and then the angel disappears, and Gideon is convinced that the Lord was behind this. Verse 25, that same night the Lord said to him, tear down your father's altar to Baal. He's saying, we have to start in your house, Gideon. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. Again, this is no William Wallace. But God doesn't criticize Gideon because obedience is more important to God than bravado. Well, the next morning, everybody gets up and says, well, what happened to our God? And someone says, well, Gideon did it. And they say, let's kill Gideon. Verse 31, but Joash, who's Gideon's father, replied to the hostile crowd around him, if Baal is really a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the nickname Jerubbaal that day, saying, let Baal contend with him. Don't miss the humor in this. This small, cowardly guy gets the nickname Baal Tail Whooper, Okay. Well, after this, verse 33, the Midianites launch a massive assault on Israel, at which point the angel appears to Gideon again and tells him to mount a resistance. And so once again, Gideon says, okay, God, again, how can I be sure that you're going to do this? And then Gideon comes up with his own idea. He says, I'm going to put out this animal skin, this fleece on the ground, and if you're really with me, then in the morning, let the ground around it be dry and let the fleece be wet. Verse 38. And that's what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece, wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said, wait a minute, God, that, that was too easy. Uh, what, what I meant to say was, let the fleece be dry and then let the, let the ground all around it be wet. That would be a real miracle. Verse 40, that night God did so. Only the fleece was dry and the ground was covered with dew. Ah, the famous fleece test, Right? I would venture to say that this concept has been more abused than just about any in the Bible, including by me. And people come up with these litmus tests to determine if God is really in something. And this isn't really the point of Gideon's story, but we'll come to that. What I want us to look at are, is what we can learn about courage from this story. Number one, God doesn't call the courageous. He makes courageous the called. When God comes to you, he never starts with what you are. He starts with what he intends to make you in Christ. And so he looks at a man cowering in a hole, and he says, mighty warrior. And we see God do this throughout Scripture. He goes to Moses, who's bumbling and stumbling, and he says, Moses, I'm going to make you a great order. And Moses says, no, 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 not me. I, I can't speak. And he says, I'll be your mouthpiece. Maybe even a better example is the story of Abraham. Abraham is old. He's sterile. And God comes to him and says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And his wife, Sarah, thinks that this is comedy hour. She starts laughing. She says, God, that, that's a good one. But Abraham believed. Romans 4, 7 tells us that faith is believing God when he calls into existence things that do not yet exist. And you understand that God does that with you and me, too. 
He, he speaks to you when you are dead in your sin, and he calls you alive based on the resurrection. The question is, will you believe him? Will you believe what he says about you? Because Satan speaks to you too. He starts with who you are and what you've done, all of your sin, and he defines you by that. He whispers, you're a failure, you're a coward, you're a reject. Scripture says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren and that he accuses us day and night before God. But God speaks with a louder word. He says, you are my beloved, you are a saint, you are righteous, you are a mighty warrior. But, but you say, God, I, I'm not any of those things. And he says, no, but you will be. See, here's how you can determine the difference between the voice of the Holy Spirit and the voice of Satan. Satan starts with who you are and what you've done, and he beats you up for it. The, the Holy Spirit will deal with your sin, but he begins by making a declaration of what he's making you into Christ, and then he grows you up into it. Another way of saying this is God does not call the equipped, he equips the called. So if you're here and you're waiting on God to give you all you need before you obey, you're never going to get there. So often we say, God, show me the provision and then I'll obey. And God says, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. You obey and I'll show you the provision. I know we have people here who, who are waiting to obey God waiting to obey God, to, to go and speak to someone, to, to go share their faith, to, to go on a mission trip, waiting to obey God by, by making a sacrifice or, or serving in a ministry here. And you're saying, God, show me how this will all work out and then I'll do it. And God says, no, no, no wrong order. You gotta get out of the boat first before you can walk on water. Number two, we are the activity of God in our generation. God's answer to Gideon's question God, why don't you do awesome things for us like you used to do for our grandparents? He answers them with the statement, Gideon, I'm here to use you. We are the activity of God in our generation. What I love so much about the book of Acts is it shows us that Jesus did not stop working when he ascended to heaven, but Jesus continues to work through, through believers, through you and me. God is the one who is working through our gifts this is why I take the gift of preaching so seriously. I know that, that I have to steward this well. Because, because it's, it's not my gift, it's something that, that God is using through me. And if you are a believer in Christ, you have at least one spiritual gift. You have been gifted. And you have a responsibility to use that, to allow God to work through you. Some of you have the gift of administration. Some of you have the gift of teaching. Some of you have the, the gift of acts of service or, or faith or prayer. You gotta use those. There's an obscure passage in Amos that I've really come to appreciate. It's Amos 5, verses 5 and 6. It says, Do not seek Bethel, do not go to Gilgal, do not journey to Beersheba, seek the Lord and live. And I always thought, why these three random cities? But they're not random at all. Bethel is where Jacob had his life changing encounter with God. It was a place that symbolized for the Israelites awakening and renewal. Gilgal was where the children of Israel finally emerged from their 40-year wandering in the wilderness. It's where they believed God and took possession of the promised land. God parted the waters of the Jordan at Gilgal. 
At Beersheba, God delivered Abraham by giving him a treaty with Abimelech that became instrumental in, the possession, in his possession of the new land. His son Isaac would make an altar there. So each of these three cities represents a place of incredible spiritual power. But by the time of Israel, apparently they're all sitting around the campfire talking about the good old days. Ah, oh, remember Gilgal? Remember what happened at Bethel? And what God is saying, would you just shut up about the good old days? My saving acts aren't just a thing of the past. Seek them in the present. And church, I just believe that we weary God when we sit around talking about the good old days. We talk about what God did in the Reformation. We talk about what God did in the Great Awakening. We, we look back and we say, man, weren't things great in, in the United States in the 1950s? Listen to me. The greatest days of spiritual outpouring are ahead of us. You want to know why I believe this? Because I have kids who will one day have kids, and I want them to experience a move of God in their generation. There are still over 6,000 unreached people groups in this world who have not heard the name of Jesus. God is not done moving. God is not done acting in this world. His plan continues onward. And so if you find yourself asking, God, why aren't you active in my family? Why aren't you working and moving on my campus? Why aren't you doing more in my community? Maybe God is saying to you, you are the answer to that prayer. You be the conduit of my power. Number three, revival starts at home. Revival starts at home. Gideon's first assignment was to get rid of the idol in his father's house. See, before you can do battle with the enemies around you, you need to throw off the enemies within you. These idols weaken you. They make you ineffective in what God has for you. You say, I don't have any idols. Well, maybe you don't understand what they are. For Gideon's family, these idols weren't things that they worshipped instead of God. They were things that they worshipped in addition to God. See, they never rejected God. They had just backed them, backed them up with these idols that, that guaranteed fertility or, or water or something else. They weren't idols in place of God, but idols in addition to God. Now, we hear that and we say, ah, oh, that's just ancient, silly superstition. Statues, come on now. But where do you have places that you aren't sure you can trust God, and so you have other things that act as a backup? Well, let me give you two sure signs of idolatry, disobedience and anxiety. For many people, they feel like they can't trust God in the area of relationships. They say, God, you're, you're good and all, but, but, but I've also got to be happily married if I'm going to be happy, and I don't like the speed at which you're taking care of things, and so that's an area that I'm going to take into my own hands. And so they compromise in relationships. There are girls who are sleeping with their boyfriends not because they think it's right or not because they even necessarily want to. They're just afraid of being single, and they don't trust God with it, so they take it into their own hands. Or there are people that, that, that they're with someone that they know they shouldn't be with. Or they walk out of their marriage in hopes of, of finding a better one because they don't trust God. That there are other people who feel like they can't be happy without a certain income. And so they cheat in their business or, or their taxes or they harm their family by, by working really long hours or they refuse to obey God financially. Disobedience is a sure sign of an idol. If you're not tithing, that indicates that money's an idol to you. 
that you don't trust God. And disobedience is always accompanied by anxiety. You're worried about your ability to hold on to these things. Maybe you're worried about your kids all the time because you feel like you can't trust God with them. What you have to understand is that before God can use you in mission, he has to go to war against your idols. You can't do battle with the enemies outside you until you've gone at war with the enemies within you. Number four, courage is not the absence of fear. It's following God in the middle of fear. God's one-line answer to Gideon's fear, his sense of inadequacy, is I am with you. This is God's one-line answer to every fear and inadequacy. So here's a question I want to ask you, and I want you to really think about this. What would life be like in any and every situation if you knew that God was with you? As you go into surgery and you're about ready to go under the knife, you knew God was with you. When you go into a new job or you head into a new relationship and, and you know that God is saying to you, I am with you. Or when you go into a new area of ministry to serve in, God is saying to you, I am with you. Or anytime you go to share the gospel with someone, you know God is saying to you, I am with you. You're dealing with a problem in your home and God is saying, I am with you. You know, if you read just about any secular article about overcoming your fears, it will almost always talk about banishing whatever thoughts cause fear. Control your thoughts. Don't think about th these things that scare you. But God's peace comes a different way. It's not closing your eyes to the things that make you afraid, but it's opening your eyes to the presence of God beside you. But this leads to the question, how do we know he is with us? How do we know that we found his favor? This ultimately is the question that Gideon is asking. And the answer is number five, the cross is our wet fleece. The cross is our wet fleece. Gideon asked God to prove he was with him by making a fleece wet when the ground was dry. I mentioned a moment ago that this concept of a fleece has been abused throughout the centuries. We give God these random litmus tests to figure out if God wants us to do something. It's like the woman who, who really, really wanted this new expensive purse, but she didn't know if it was worth it. She didn't know if she should be spending this kind of money on it. And so she said, God, I really want this, and, and I got to know if this, is, if this is what you really want me to have. And so, God, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to drive to the store, and, and if I get to the store, there's an open parking spot in the front row. I'll know that's a sign that you want me to have this purse. And so she drives to the store. She sees the, the purse there in the window, and sure enough, there, there's, a, there's an open parking spot in the front row. I mean, sure, she had to drive around the parking lot a dozen times before that spot opened up, but it was there. Listen, I'm not saying it's always wrong to ask for confirmation, but what you need to understand is the overwhelming majority of the decision-making process should be Scripture, prayer, and good godly counsel. But I can tell you that's not the main point being made here. In fact, Gideon knew that what he was doing was unwise. Do you see in verse 38 where Gideon tells God not to be angry at him for asking? He knows that he's testing God's patience. And Gideon's main question was not whether God wanted him to do it, but God, how do I know you're really on my side? How do I know that you're really in control? Church, we have something much better that shows us God is in control and that God is on our side, and it's the cross of Jesus. 
in the cross, we see that God is in control because God took the worst actions of men. He, he took the most evil act in history and he used it for his plan and for our good. And that shows us that God can work and use the worst times in our life as well. The cross also tells us that God is on our side. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross is what gives us courage. One of my favorite verses on fear is 1 John 4, 18. It says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Look at the next phrase. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. I love this phrase, fear has to do with punishment. Where we see something that makes us afraid and we feel vulnerable, right? And this goes all the way back to the garden. The first effect of the fall was a sense of nakedness. We feel vulnerable and so what do we do? We clothe ourselves, right? We clothe ourselves with a good job. We clothe ourselves with a good reputation, we clothe ourselves with good relationships, but we know that at any point the clothing might be stripped away. But in the cross, we are clothed with the perfect love of God. Think about all the ways that God's love is perfect. God's love is perfect in its intensity towards us. God couldn't love us anymore. It's perfect in, it, in its constancy with us. In Christ, God says he will never leave us. It's perfect in its sufficiency we were created for the eternal love of God. By being loved by him and possessed by him, our thirst is quenched. And it's perfect in its sovereignty of all things in our lives. We know he controls every molecule in the universe to work out his good and perfect plan for our lives. Intensity, constancy, sufficiency, sovereignty. With God's perfect love, what else could we be afraid of? Psalm 56, 11 says, In God I trust and am not afraid. What can man do to me? The answer, nothing. Do you know this love? If you're experiencing any kind of fear, it's because you've lost touch with one of those aspects of God's perfect love. Intensity, constancy, sufficiency, sovereignty. Church, the bottom line is true courage comes from the presence and promises of God. And those are given to us irrevocably in the gospel. When Jesus sent his disciples on what we call the Great Commission, he said this, and I am with you always to the very end of the age. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. The Great Commission begins with the great announcement that I am with you. The power to go far and do much in the Great Commission comes from the confidence of the great announcement. And that's what God is saying to you today. Go, mighty warrior. I am with you. Is God calling you today to be his instrument? Is he calling you today to obey him in some area? I can tell you what he says. He says you are a saint. You are highly beloved in Christ. You say, but God, I don't, I don't feel like a saint. He says, that's what I've made you in Jesus. He says, you are my ambassador. That means you are on mission by me. And because you're serving me, I will supply whatever need you have. He says, you are my son and daughter. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So be strong and courageous for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You 
are a mighty warrior. Church, we don't work up courage. It doesn't come from our personality. It comes from embracing our identity in Christ. We receive it as a gift. It's not worked out. See, virtues like courage, they don't lead us to salvation. They flow from our salvation. So do not look to your courage to give you an identity in Christ. Look to your identity in Christ to give you courage. Do you know who you are in Christ? Do you know what he says of you? Get up. Go, mighty warrior. Let's pray. Lord, so often we, we look at our lives and we want you to give us signs that, that you're with us, signs that we want to go and do, signs that, that you're leading us in the right direction. And God, I thank you for the cross. You have said it clearly and unmistakably in the cross that you are in control and you are with us. And God, if we belong to you, then we have nothing to fear. Because by belonging to you, we have courage. You give us courage. It comes from you. It's not something that we muster. So God, I pray that those of us who know you, who have a relationship with your son Jesus, that we would go from this place knowing that you have called us a mighty warrior, that we can go serve you on mission, that we can obey you in these different areas because we know that you are with us. God, I also pray for those here today who don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, who've been trying to muster up all this on their own. I pray that today would be the day that they say, I, I finally realize I have to embrace who Jesus is. I have to accept him as my Lord and Savior. And that everything that I want in life will flow out of a relationship with Jesus. God, if there's someone in here today who needs to call on the name above every name, I pray that they would do that. I pray that your spirit, your spirit would give them courage to make that decision, not nothing that they're manufacturing on their own. And I pray that together all of us would rise up. We would go forth into this world because we know that you are with us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.